You are listening to ReachMD, the only source for medical education and information that is on air, online, and on the go. Welcome to the Connect Dialogues, women's health education on ReachMD. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Fibromyalgia, migraines, irritable bowel syndrome, TMJ, PMS, and neurodermatitis. What could these all have in common? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Paul Markowitz. Dr. Markowitz is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and the director of the Mood and Anxiety Research Center in Fresno, California. In addition to having a PhD in biochemistry, he is a board-certified psychiatrist who has been the primary investigator for dozens of clinical trials. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Leslie. Thanks for having me. So I'm curious about this list, Paul. Uh, As a psychiatrist, do you lump these various diseases in together? So say fibromyalgia and TMJ? If they co-occur, I assume they're the same thing. I may or may not be right all the time, but actually it's not my idea. It gets back to Sir William Osler at the turn of the 1900s where he came up with the idea of parsimony of diagnosis where you have one disease with many symptoms. And so if I have a depressed patient here and they have fibromyalgia and TMJ, maybe distant history of migraines or irritable bowel, I assume they're all part of the same disease. And there's actually a biochemistry that bears that out. So let's say you're a primary care physician. What should they think about when one of these patients walks in the door? How can we help? I guess the thing you want to do is the same way you do any other differential. You see what goes on with it. It's pretty rare, for example, that somebody just walks in with fibromyalgia. It happens. But usually they display certain depressive or anxiety symptoms with it. Most of the time, if it's not the first time they've seen you, they'll have gotten treated for a number of other somatic complaints. They'll have the thick chart. They may have severe personality issues in some cases. And so as opposed to looking at those as if they're different things, that the depression came about because of the fibromyalgia or whatever, they're all the same thing. And so what I would then do is say, well, what links these guys together? We know, for example, that in the case of fibromyalgia, which is about 12 to 1 female to male, that 97% of the women with fibromyalgia have low serotonin levels in their central nervous system or platelets and low 5-hydroxyindolacetic acid levels, the breakdown product of serotonin on spinal taps. So all things being equal, throwing in an NSAID is not going to do much for serotonin if they're low, but throwing in an antidepressant will. And we've done some double-blind trials that shows that they are extremely effective at eliminating that problem. The migraines go away in the irritable bowel and the carb craving and everything they have with it, too. It's pretty neat. That is pretty neat. What else can you tell us about these various diagnoses, like um, neurodermatitis, for example? Well, it turns out that most of these, there's actually a list of things, irritable bowel, PMS, neurodermatitis, migraines and headaches, sleep apnea, TMJ, fibromyalgia, even restless leg to a certain extent, that are tied in, they they tend to co-occur. And just as you would have fevers, achy joints, vomiting, and diarrhea with the flu, it's easier to think of these as flowing from one chemical cause as opposed to nine or ten different diseases. All of these things are tied in with low levels of serotonin, whatever that represents in the brain. 
the chances of having depression are about 20-fold higher in an individual that has fibromyalgia. Likewise, if you're a woman with depression, you're about 20-fold more likely to get fibromyalgia than you would otherwise. They're probably the same thing, just like having achy joints and fever with the flu. And what you do is you crank up serotonin levels and they go away. And you can do that with SRIs, SNRIs, MAOIs, or synthetic serotonins like nifazidone or mirtazapine. It's extremely effective. The, the reason these women have carbohydrate craving is it pumps tryptophan into the central nervous system, which causes serotonin to be synthesized in two steps. And once your serotonin levels go up, you're okay. What they will do then, for the same reason a diabetic will drink water to flush out the extra blood sugar and asthmatical wheeze, people that have fibromyalgia, for example, or any of the other diseases, will have carbohydrate craving, and they do that to try to compensate by making the neurotransmitter that they don't have enough of. It doesn't work, unfortunately, and they get fat. The medicine Meridia that they use for weight loss now is just an antidepressant, and it only works in people with carbohydrate craving or sweet tooth. Uh, you titrate the medicines up till the carb craving goes away, whether it's for weight reduction with Meridia or Effexor or Cymbalta for the somatic complaints, and usually three out of four times the patient's going to live happily ever after and think you're a genius. It sounds like then routinely you ask about carb craving in your, in your initial visit. And I'll ask about the somatic complaints, and then I'll ask about the carb craving, and the patients go, I thought you were a psychiatrist. Why are you asking me about that stuff? It's more prevalent, way more prevalent in women than men, but it is a good guide if they have carbohydrate craving or if they're getting a little overweight uh, as you're seeing them in your practice over time and they tend to have the carb craving, uh, that's a good thing to, to look at and you push the dosage again of Effexor or Cymbalta or whatever drug you're using till the carb craving goes away and you're set. I don't use serotonin reuptake inhibitors anymore like Prozac or Zoloft or Paxil. Uh, down the road, they cause weight gain because they downregulate a certain receptor, and the SNRIs, Effexor, and Cymbalta seem not to do that as much. So can you give us an idea of how you might dose either Cymbalta or Effexor for these sorts of problems? Assuming they're not on an antidepressant that they've been on, a Zoloft or a Prozac before, or if they weren't on Effexor or Cymbalta at lower dosages, I'll usually start at a low dose, uh, 37.5 of Effexor or 30 of Cymbalta, just not to scare them off because you can get a little nausea with it. If they do get nausea, what you can do is dissolve 30 milligrams of Remeron in 20 ounces of water and have them drink an ounce of it at bedtime, and it'll work like an anti-emetic. It's actually a poor man's Zofran or Chytril. Uh, it'll block the serotonin-3 receptors so people don't get nausea. And you do an ounce of this for five days and then half an ounce for five days as you're going up on the dosage of your antidepressant. I increase the dosage of antidepressant by 30 milligrams for Cymbalta, and I'll go from 37.5 to 75 of Effexor. Every five days, I'll make one of those incremental increases. When I get to 150 of Effexor, I only go up in 150 milligram increments because the 150s and the 75s cost the same. Likewise with Cymbalta, once I get up to 60 milligrams, I only go up in 60 milligram increments because the 30s and 60s cost the same. For 9 out of 10 patients, the 120 milligrams of Cymbalta or the 450 milligrams of Effexor should do the trick. If you just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Paul Markowitz. We are discussing carbohydrate craving and how that may relate to many common conditions. 
Uh, Paul, one of the things I worry about when I go up on the dose of meds like Effexor is increased blood pressure. How common do you see that and how might you deal with it if it happens? It happens in a couple of 3% of patients. I've actually had more trouble with hypotension because people tend to lose weight, but I treat it, throw in a beta blocker or whatever I need to do. Sometimes switching from an Effexor to a Cymbalta, even though they're in the same class of medications, you may get less hypertension. It has not been a big issue. This is not just 20 or 30 patients that we've done this in. We've done this in many thousands of individuals. This is an off-label use of the medication. Its company doesn't subscribe to this, but there really aren't that many issues with hypertension. It's going to happen once in a a blue moon. It it does once in a while, but it's pretty rare, and it's fairly easy to treat. The uh, interesting thing about the somatic complaints is if the patient comes in with a very mild depression and multiple somatic complaints versus a severe depression without somatic complaints, it tends to take two or three times as much medication to treat the mildly depressed somatic patient as the suicidal, out-of-their-mind, crazy, depressed patient that has no somatic complaints, probably because the medicines are doing two different things. We've even done trials where we took non-depressed patients that had multiple somatic complaints, the migraines, irritable bowel, fibromyalgia, TMJ, and so on from that serotonin-linked list, and put them on antidepressants. And we compared them to a group that was depressed with somatic complaints, and they did equally well. So you didn't even need to be depressed for the antidepressants to work. They were addressing whatever those primary somatic complaints were. Now, often one of the problems in dealing with these patients can be their personality disorder. How do you keep these people from driving you crazy? My job is to get people better, and I assume that they're doing exactly what they want to. It's actually, in a way, it's it's weird I know a lot of clinicians that have grave difficulties dealing with these patients. Practices are interesting because they either have lots of these patients or none at all because the doctor either tolerates them or doesn't. But the patients aren't doing this to torture us. They are coming to us because they love us, and they really think we got the answer and we can get them better. So I'm actually kind of humbled and honored by the fact that they're coming to me to get better. But getting mad at them for the way they act or talk is like getting mad at a diabetic for having high blood sugar or an asthmatic for wheezing, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to with their personality and their brain chemistry and their wiring. And everything in their life they can change, they already do. That's why they got their air conditioner on in the summer and their heat in the winter. So our job is not to pass judgment on them. Our job is to get them better and to fix their brain as much as possible. And when you look at it like that way chemically, it really makes treating them a lot easier. You can step back. It makes it a little easier. Don't take it personal. You can't get mad at your two-year-old for having a tantrum because that's uh, that's their job. They've done some interesting studies on that where they found out our kids really don't listen to us after they're about a year and a half old anymore. They only li- listen to their peers, but they hang out and do what we say because they want the food and the roof over their head. So they're smart enough at one and a half to know that. So any other words of wisdom on how to treat what seemingly can be very complex people? As with any other field of medicine, if what you're doing isn't working, try something else that has a different tact on it. Try to tie everything together into one disease, getting back to Sir William Osler's principle of parsimonia diagnosis. And most importantly, if you feel you're in over your head, refer the patient somewhere else. The worst thing you can do, particularly in this day and age where we're all overburdened, is to keep somebody hanging on with one of these diseases. The pain disorders, for example, fibromyalgia, chronic migraines, the same area that dies in your brain when you have depression in the hippocampus also dies in chronic pain states. 
So if you don't get it treated effectively relatively quickly, you're going to select for a chronic illness that's not going to become treatable over time. So get them to the right place if you're in over your head. The whole issue of medications, I think, in these people sometimes can be scary. How do you address the people who say, oh, you know, again, assuming you're a primary care physician, you think it's all in my head. You don't believe that I have pain. What tips can you give? What kind of language can we use to help patients understand this? I do tell them that it's all in their head, but at the same time, that's where our brain is. When people have cancer, some type of nasty metastasis that's causing pain, we actually lesion areas in the spinal cord so that signals don't get transferred to the brain because that's where pain is registered. That's where our ability to see is and regulate temperature. Every aspect of our being a person is controlled there. I tell them they only have two choices. Either they are deliberately doing this, in which case they're a jerk and it's their fault, or it's chemical. There is no mid-ground. And if indeed they have pain, regardless of what the medicine's called, if it fixes it, who cares? I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Paul Markowitz. We have been discussing somatic symptoms and how serotonin and other neurotransmitters may be the key. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Connect Dialogues, Women's Health Education. If you missed any part of this program or would like to hear more like it, visit www.reachmd.com forward slash connect dialogues.